Welcome to the Athletes in the Arts podcast, hosted by Stephen Karaginas and Yasi Ansari. What is up, everyone? This is the Athletes and the Arts podcast. I'm Stephen Karaginas, along with my co-host, Yasi Ansari. In our episode, we discuss the importance of nutrition for dance and how to navigate challenges that come up regarding body image and food within the dance environment. Our guests today are part of the Sports and Human Performance Nutrition Group, which is a dietetic practice group within the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. There's a ton of nutrition information out there today. People are getting nutrition advice from a variety of sources, such as TikTok, Instagram, TV, blogs, and more. Now, when it comes to our health, it is important to make sure that the information we take in is from trusted sources who are credentialed and have solid experience. Whether you are a health professional, a parent, or a dancer, we have resources for you that are evidence-based and developed by professionals who have hands-on experience with performing artists. Steve and I had the opportunity to interview registered dietitian nutritionists and certified specialists in sports dietetics Michelle Macedonio, and Roberta Anding, and former professional dancer and dietitian-to-be Astrid Zuluaga-Lopez. For more information on our speakers and resources, please read through our show notes. Hello, everyone. We are so excited to have you on our show this morning. Michelle, could you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing and your journey through nutrition? I'm a sports dietitian, and I have worked with several professional sport teams, My favorite thing to do has been to work with individual athletes, uh, particularly those that were going from high school to college and college trying to get into the pros. They were the most receptive, I can tell you. Um, I've had a very varied background, but I've been very involved in SCAN, which preceded Shippen. Um, And I've had many roles in SCAN. And one of the roles was to represent the, the DPG, our dietetic practice group, at the Joint Commission for, for Sports Medicine and Science. And that's where I met Randy Dick, who began this whole project of athletes and the arts. And we were at a meeting. I brought some of the SCAN handouts. We had these beautiful um, fact sheets. They would be a one-page fact sheet, very simple, with ideas on how to to address a particular problem. And I shared them with those at Joint Commission. Randy came up to me afterwards and said to me, Michelle, those are so great. Mm -hmm. Could we use those with athletes and the arts? And that's how it all started. Mm -hmm. We then talked and worked with SCAN to modify many of those fact sheets specifically for for, um, performing athletes. Years ago, I worked with the Ohio Ballet, which was um, based in Akron, Ohio, and I used to work with ballet dancers, so I was really excited about that. I then went back to SCAN, and my colleague said, yes, let's go forward with it. So we did make uh, fact sheets for the Athletes and the Arts website, made it available. My career got a little busier, and I stepped away, and Yassi stepped in, so... (laughs) That's my role with um, sport, athletes and the arts. And um, right now, I try to be a good um, shipping member, and I've made myself available to Roberta 
to do various things. I just helped her plan um, a webinar that we had a few months ago. And um, I, I'm just sort of the kind of person that you call up and say, will you do it? And nine times out of 10, I will say yes. Michelle, your, your journey has been so great. And you were one of the first people who noticed that there was a need for uh, educational resources for dance. So I am honestly, I know me and other fellow dancers are just so grateful for you stepping up and, and helping get the ball rolling when it came to athletes in the arts. Um, and that's how you and I got connected too, which is so awesome and so great. And um, it's it's just been a pleasure getting to like connect with you and, and learn from you and, and what you started when it came to athletes in the arts. And I just want to clarify that Shippen is, it's called the Sports and Human Performance Nutrition Group. It's a dietetic practice group for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. And we're going to be talking a lot more about some of the resources that uh, Shippen provides to athletes. Uh, Roberta, so the first time I ever met Roberta, I remember it was a a fancy conference and I was one of, I was a dietetic student. I was like waiting in line and getting so excited to, to meet her because she is just such a force. And um, it is always so great to learn from you too, Roberta. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey in dietetics and where it all began? Oh, thank you so much for the the, the kind words. Um, I'm kind of like Michelle. I've been around for a really long time. I oftentimes call myself a fossil. Um, for the purpose of this group, I was the director of adolescent and sports nutrition at Texas Children's for 17 years and dealt with adolescents um, that had significant eating disorders, uh, a lot of uh, ballerinas. My boss, Al Hergenroder, did some of the primary research on calorie needs for ballerinas. And as in that role, I was able to take care of the dancers at the Houston Ballet for 15 years from level one through the company, and then also did all the nutrition work for the summer intensive. And my experience there, um, again, kind of dovetails off of Michelle's um, passion for providing education. I found a huge knowledge deficit. The dancers were brilliant and really um, enthusiastic to get information. The problem is the information they were getting oftentimes might've been from one of their instructors who would say, eh, you know, perfectly normal for you not to have a period your whole entire life. You're a dancer. And so it was uh, eye-opening for me to think that that was the state of the art in um, the early 2000s. But that was very exciting for me. And in addition, as just like Michelle, I've taken care of professional teams here in Houston, was with the Houston Texans for 12 years and the Houston Astros for 10. And currently, I'm the director of performance nutrition at Rice University, taking care of athletes everywhere, including our cheerleaders, which to me would kind of fall into that that category of dance as well. So um, just a very exciting career. And again, Michelle and I have been uh, close friends for 25 years. And so I think sometimes when you have a shared passion, you find shared friendships that last a lifetime and um, mutual respect. Indeed. Real quick question. Um, being the only person who's not spending his career in nutrition, um, I just want to ask a quick question about like the differentiation of the terms like nutritionist, dietitian, those kind of things. Like, what is the difference with those terms? Perfect question. We get it very often. I was uh, many a time I've been asked, so did you go to college for this? <laughs> what a registered dietitian is, is someone who has spent a minimum of a bachelor's degree, four-year bachelor degree, most of us 
take four years to do that in nutrition. And then generally you can do other subjects, but nutrition is the primary focus of your undergraduate degree. And then you go for an internship. For my case, I was in the service for four years and I did my internship with the public health service. After that, I particularly went and got two master's degrees. At the time, it was not as common to get master's degrees as now it's becoming much more common. But I just felt the need, and Roberta said, my love for education. My second degree is sports, a health, it's called health sciences education, because I believed just because you know it doesn't mean you can teach it. Right. And so my first nutrition, my first master's degree was in nutrition, and then I got a, a master's in health sciences education. So for me, it's been educational most of my life, but people like Roberta have done research. Um, dietitians have to be registered, number one, before you can even get licensed. We are licensed by our states. Uh -huh. And to get registered, you have to take an examination after you finish your, your internship. And you have to maintain 75 credits every five years to just maintain that, that credential. Um, so we are well-trained in nutrition and in dietetics. So you might say, well, what in the world is dietetics? Dietetics is taking this, the science of nutrition and teaching people how to incorporate that into their lives and into their lifestyles. And we make adjustments if there's clinical need or if there is just someone who wants to just eat better and feel better and improve their health. So that's what a registered dietitian is. Mm -hmm. Now, a few years ago, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics decided, because of the confusion, to add nutritionist to RD. So now you have an RDN. Okay. Okay. The term nutritionist alone means very little. We have a colleague that Roberta and I both know whose dog is certified as a nutritionist. She has what? that certification in her office. To illustrate that, <laughs> yes, yes, to illustrate that anybody can call themselves a nutritionist. <laughs> a rigorous course of education and testing and continuing professional education can be a registered dietitian nutritionist. So it takes about seven years for a dog to do it in, in dog years. <laughs> Very short. Dog's much smarter than the, the right. Human. Like just so two weeks, right? Boom, done. Two weeks, yeah. Oh man, wow, that was, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a class reunion every three months. So, all right. Wow. All right. That's crazy. So we also have an amazing guest with us named Astrid. She was a former professional dancer. Astrid, I would love to to hear more about your journey and. And I hear that you are an RD to B, which is so exciting. So tell us a little bit about your dance journey. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, well, it's funny to me. It's funny to think the way I started is when you hear about other dancers how they started. Usually, goes with oh, uh, my mom put me in ballet classes when I was three years old, and it was just love at first sight. But in my case, I was I was six years old and really just they got me into ballet because I was walking with my feet turned in 
<laughs> so they took me to the doctor and they they just recommended me to take ballet or dance classes. It didn't have to be ballet. Um, and my mom just took me to ballet and, and ever since I've been involved with ballet. But I did most of my training in in Venezuela. After that, I had this opportunity to move to Panama with my whole family. And um, I was able to dance with the Ballet Nacional de Panama for about a year and a half until I had to move to the United States or Miami specifically. And I was just trying to stay in shape by taking a few classes in Miami City Ballet. And the instructor there just saw me and just wondered, why didn't you audition for for the pre-professional program? And I was like, that could be a really good opportunity. And I so I did, and, and I was able to dance with the Miami City Ballet School for a year and a half, which was an amazing experience because um, I've been training. There's a, a lot of different ballet styles. I was training mainly in the Vaganova, which is the Russian style, with a little bit of Cuban style in Panama. So I had a good mix. And then Miami City Ballet had this focus on Balanchine style, which is very famous and popular, especially in uh, New York, New York City Ballet. So that was a good exposure, right? And I could see my improved and had changed a lot. And I could see myself just had this versatility uh, that I didn't have before. So um, I did my last couple of years um, dancing in Arts Ballet Theater of Florida, which is like a small company. Um, where I was able to just dance a really iconic Coppelia mm-hmm. in Nutcracker. So it was a beautiful experience. As you become a professional, you think you're done, right, uh, with learning. But the, the reality is it's a constant learning experience. So every single class, even though you're doing something pretty much the same thing, right, your same warm-up, it, there's always a way to improve it. it there's always a, a, a way to make um, or Warm better, so I was constantly learning and constantly wanting to improve, and it was not. It didn't ever feel like I was ready and perfect and done. And I think that's something that not only dancers that get to corpse of ballet, but the soloists. You know, you you look up to them and the prima ballerinas, and they showed you all the time how they're always ready to go back to basics, always ready to take a, a beginner's class just so that they can look back, look into their technique and perfect it again. So they're really, really fulfilling for sure. <laughs> so Astrid, why nutrition now? Um, I know that nutrition has, I assume, has had a really big impact on you throughout your career. Could you hear a little bit about why you have goals of becoming a dietitian? I didn't always know what, that I wanted to be a dietitian. Um, I think the desire to become one arose from just me having so many questions and no answers, right? When I was a dancer, for the most part, I would just look for the the, the answers on Google <laughs> or you know blog articles and and. To me, it was frustrating because they were always contradicting. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I could see that I was ready to move on from my ballet career, at least as a performer, I was like, I want to do something that is still involved with the ballet world or dance world. Um, so I thought, what is a good way for me to be helpful or make an impact? other than as an instructor because I'm teaching still, right? But I wanted to do more. 
Did you see a lot of uh, bad outcomes with your colleagues in the professional world with nutrition and body image issues, eating disorders and things? That's, I think that's like the, the sad part, right? For the most part, when, whenever we would have conversations, it would always involve uh, body image and weight or what foods are you eating or are you following this diet that's worked for me why don't you try this uh or you know i didn't eat uh, today or and it was normal it was you know um you would think you you would get tired of it but it was just it's just i think we were in a constant need of to lose weight perpetually like it, it was never for my case or my peers it was we were constantly trying to lose weight for how who who knows how many years so yeah absolutely saw things like you know my peers weighing them, them themselves after they ate an apple for example right like as if that would make a difference or even just being very tense and scared about getting weight at your you know the company having to do those weigh-ins it was definitely something that would cause a lot of anxiety and frustration, but it was almost normal in a way. So, yeah. Astrid, I have a question for you. When I worked with the Ohio Ballet, it was in the later 80s, 1980s, which seems like when? <laughs> that ancient world. But one of the things that I experienced with the dancers was a pressure from the director. Um, the director's idea of the ideal ballerina or the, the ideal ballerina weight or physique. Yeah. Is that still common? I stopped dancing in 2017 and up to that point, it was still like that. That was for me, that was like the most horrifying thing. Cause you know, some, some directors would choose to tell you in private that they think that you might need to do something about your weight, but some others will just be very vocal about it in front of all your peers, right? All of the coworkers. So it was, you know, it was a very humiliating situation. And I hope right now with this whole inclusivity mo uh, movement, I, I hope that that's changing. I think it's different from like, the academies where I work, well, you know, that's not, it's not comparable because we don't have an artistic director. It's basically instructors and we do our best to not, you know, not talk about weight at all, but just like how to properly fuel bodies and having a good or healthy relationship with food, right? But when, when it was at the company, yeah, it was, it was a terrifying thing. I would always try it whenever they would call us in group because I thought, okay, this is, going to happen. I guess the other thing I'd like to put in, in there, and I, I'm, I'm going to put in a hopeful message here. Um, I was fortunate to work with Lauren Anderson at the Houston Ballet, and she is muscular and fit and a gorgeous dancer. And then Misty Copeland comes along and again has that, I'm going to say in my, my mind, a beautiful and more muscular physique than you would see in traditional dance. So Astrid, do you, um, are these women that you would say the average dancer looks up to or um, give me your thoughts on that? Yes, a hundred percent. I think now with having Misty Copeland and Lauren Anderson as examples in, you know, knowing about their careers, it's definitely, you know, people that we look up, uh, we look up to. And for those that are new in the ballet world, we certainly make sure 
that we let them know who these people are, you know, that you don't have to look super thin to be a, a talented and beautiful ballet dancer. You can also look strong and muscular and still be amazing uh, in ballet. There's this dancer called Marianela Nunez. She's from Argentina and dances in London, if I'm not wrong, Royal Ballet. And she looks amazing. She And then she's all muscles as well. And and it's just, you know, it, it, I think... I think it has shifted the the mindset of, oh, I have to be super, super, super slim. And, you know, but, and, and it's good that we have other dancers that look different uh, as an example. But I think we still have a long way to go for sure. Astrid, I have another question for you. One of the problems that we had to deal with with our ballet dancers, first of all, I will tell you that we tested them. And the ballet dancers were stronger than the football players that we tested. Oh, wow. It was pretty amazing. But my question for you is that one of the issues that the professional ballet dancers had to deal with was they worked while everybody played. And they played while everybody worked. The hours that they kept were different from the average individual. They might be working until 11 o'clock at night, and then they're so revved up that they'll go out and have food or drink or whatever. Um, could you talk about your experience with any of that? So because I was in a small company, our hours were say not as long on a daily basis. Like I'm sure bigger companies have performances, not just in the weekends, which would be our case, but you would have them have these uh, performances back to back sometimes from Wednesday to Sunday. In my case, I would be I would be doing between six eight hours, and the performances will they were very spread out, so we didn't have to do those back to back so often. But whenever we would, it was very intense, um, really tiring as well. With a with a day so packed with so many rehearsals and activity, it almost leaves very little time for dancers to properly fuel and for the most part includes just protein because of this fear of carbs. When you're in the middle of, you know, training where you definitely need the most is carbs, right? So I don't know if we as a profession give it enough importance. The focus as dancers, the focus that we give to nutrition and fueling, it's not directed to performance per se, but more about how do we use some nutrition strategies to make us look slimmer and look better. And our artistic director gives us more roles. So it almost feels like performance, at least in my experience, was almost secondary to how we could actually improve the way we looked on stage. And Astrid, I don't know if you ever experienced this, but when I was dancing, um, I remember when an instructor would critique a movement they might compare it to an animal right and they might say like oh so and so is landing like a whale and it's it's like there was a lot of these um you know metaphors that were being used that i can see how a dancer that might be feeling sensitive or just kind of vulnerable in a moment when they were trying something new um taking that and internalizing that and feeling like that means they need to change their body and so I'm just curious to see, you know, Roberta and Michelle, when you guys were counseling dancers, 
during your time in, in the dance companies, how did you guys navigate these conversations if a dancer did come to you and hopefully I'm hoping they were reaching out when it, when they were experiencing something like this? Well, I think that kind of goes with that whole concept of body shaming, right? So when you're using those metaphors and say you landed like a whale or, you know, you, or you landed like a thud, none of that speaks beauty and artistic abilities. It's, it's tend to be self it's, it's deprecating, but not to the point of saying you're fat. I had some, um, of the instructors that I worked with that would actually use those words and say, first they'd start out and say, your lines aren't great. And everybody knew what that meant. Mm-hmm. You don't have great lines. It's like, okay, you need to lose weight. And oftentimes they were sent to see me for weight loss. And it, it became more, more punitive than educational. It's like, well, you need to go see the dietitian. And the implication was, there's your punishment mm-hmm. is the dietitian is going to help you to do this. And so I think as RDs, uh, our role is not only um, to understand the dance world. And I'm pretty fond of saying, you know, if, if you're five foot six and 150 pounds, it's going to be difficult for you to partner with somebody. It's going to be different for difficult for maybe someone to lift you. So this is an aesthetic sport that there's this fine line between malnutrition and adequate fueling and being lean and malnourished. And those were the conversations that I would have because to Astrid's point, the, the, the message was starve yourself, Yeah, starve yourself, or I'm not going to choose you for a part. And then they would come back and say, well, she doesn't have any energy or she gets fatigued in the middle of rehearsal um, she can't cognitively perform. She can't do the choreography anymore. And I keep saying she, because that's what it was. The males were oftentimes saying, get stronger, get stronger, lift weights. The message was different, but for the women, it was, it was difficult. So I think being a dietitian in that arena, you're dealing with body image concerns. You're um, dealing oftentimes with depression. I've put all of my my career goals on being in a professional company. And I may not get there if I don't do that. And then you're also dealing with the sequelae. If you take those calories so low, and we know this as physicians and and dietitians, you end up lowering metabolic rate. And so the amount of calories to support you actually goes down. And then it's this, it's self-perpetuating. Oh, there's something wrong with my body because I'm only eating 1200 calories a day and I'm no longer losing weight. I'm broken mm-hmm. rather than not knowing it's malnutrition. So I think it takes um, skill in disordered eating, body image concerns, depression, and understanding truly in the dance world what underfueling means. And so, Michelle, was that your experience as well? Yeah, exactly, Roberta. You hit the nail on the head. The other thing I wanted to say is the beauty of us being dietitians. I know Roberta does this as well as I and Yasi. I always tell my athletes, whether it's a performance athlete or a football or a baseball athlete, I am here number one for your health. Yes. Mm-hmm. Then your performance. I don't focus on the weight because I say I don't care what you weigh sometimes. I'll say that. I care what you do. Because if you do what's best for your health and your performance, your weight will be where it needs to be. And I think that's the, the beauty of it because we can take that focus away from the weight per se. Not that 
someone doesn't come into you and say, I have to lose 10 pounds or I have to gain 10 pounds. But the point is, if you look at their health and you make sure that they're healthy first, and then you look at their performance, we know enough about nutri performance nutrition to be able to guide them into good performance. And that takes that stigma that we all experienced, the stigma of, oh, the dietitian, she's going to tell me to lose weight. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily. And a, a, an addendum to that, Michelle, I think the other piece of this is, if you, and I think this is being empathetic, if I look at someone and they've invested their whole career, invested 10 or 15 years, and they're looking at this and saying, you're talking to me about my health, but I need to lose five pounds. So I'm going to do this with or without you. And if that means I'm going to do something aberrant, I'm going to use laxatives, I'm going to use diuretics, I'm going to fast or whatever that, that modality is, I think that puts oftentimes the dancer, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Mm -hmm. Yes, they want to maximize their health, but they also know that if they're in a pre-professional and they're so close to being in the company that it's like all I have to do. And mm -hmm. so again, I think being empathetic and how difficult this must be, we can flip this and put this on any sport, right? right? Yep. So That's if you true. want to be a lineman in football, you're not going to be a lineman if you weigh 150 pounds, not going to happen. Right. You're going to have to force your weight in that other direction. Mm -hmm. And if the dietitian isn't guiding you along that path, you're going to do it on your own. And it might be that you eat, you know, a 16 piece bucket of fried chicken. I did an interview with a former lineman yesterday and he said, yeah, I'll admit it. I binged. I absolutely binged. I got to the point where I really thought I was going to vomit, but I had to play at 315. So I think in all aspects of performance nutrition, it's almost putting yourself in that, that person's shoes yeah. and saying, how can I guide you with an eye on your health, but also honoring and respecting the fact that this is your life and walking that fine line because, um, you know, I think most female dancers know if somebody says, do you have a period? No one is going to validate that without blood work. So it's like, yeah, sure. I have a normal cycle every month because they know they're going to be asked that mm -hmm. either on a pre-participation physical, they're going to be screened for amenorrhea. So unless you're doing a bunch of blood work, why would I admit that unless where I am is in a safe space where somebody is going to guide me and not just say, you don't need to focus in on your weight or you don't need to focus only in on your health. So I think there's all kinds of different layers to this that makes uh, dance not only beautiful, the dancers are beautiful to work with, but also super complex. Yeah. And, and Roberta, you're absolutely right on that. I didn't mean to imply that the weight didn't matter, mm -hmm. but they also know that as a dietitian, we're health professionals and we want to keep them healthy. Otherwise they won't be dancing. Right. And the same thing with the other athletes that we work with. If you're not healthy, when you are energy deprived, you put yourself at risking, um, risking your immune system function. And if you're not feeling good, if you're not well, I don't care what weight you are. I don't care how good you are. You're not playing. Right. If you're getting sick all the time, getting respiratory disease all the time because you're restricting so much that you're compromising your your immune system. So Roberta's right. The empathy there goes back to one of the things that I always loved was trying to get to know the 
person. Mm -hmm. You're not just another football player or a dancer or a basketball player or whatever. You're a person. And the first part of that for me always was getting to know them. Um, I, what I loved very often was watching, going to practices and watch. And they would see you there. Um, and they got to believe that you really cared about me. So Roberta's point is so well taken. You have to be empathetic. And you're not, you're not a um, director. You're a source of information. You're a facilitator. We facilitate them doing what's best for them. So we talk a lot about choreographers and directors and how they talk to dancers, how dancers look at themselves and how they have sometimes self-defeating ideas in their head about nutrition. But what's it like, and Astrid, you can talk about this, I think, um, here. Uh, what's it like in between among the dancers themselves? Uh, what are the relationships like? How do you talk about these issues with each other? Um, because in, in the professional world, of course, it's one problem because there's competition. Um, but then there's also, you know, we're all in this together against the director. We're all in this together. We're all experiencing the same kind of problems. So there's obviously a, um, there's all, there's obviously a need to want to share this, not suffer in silence. But at the same time, um, do you ever look at do the answers ever look at each other and say that person is actually kind of heavy compared to me, or is it always like everybody else is better than I am? I mean, what kind of interactions do you see? I think I saw a little bit of everything. I think in my, um, I would say when I was dancing pre-professionally, it was because there was so much competition because, you know, you want to get a spot in the company. It was more of like, oh, how come that this person got the job and I am stronger at this or it looks better than her or something like that. I, I think I got to see that perspective with my peers when we were just trying to find a job. But once I was in the in the company, you just spend so much time with these people or or I became closer to them whenever we would find ourselves because again, we would talk about the way we look every single day every time. We I mean, we work 8 hours right in front of really big mirrors. So, you know, it's all we talk about, how we look, the the lines, everything. So, whenever we have a director talk about how we look, either individually or as as a group, like if we have to lose weight or look more in shape, we would just kind of like just try to cheer each other up because it was one, um, you know, frustrating because we are trying already our best to lose weight, right? Because it never ends. At least in my case, we were constantly dieting. And at that point, all we could do or we were trying to do is like advise each other what was like the best way to to, to do it or to please the, the the directors so that we wouldn't be called out again. The thing is, we would go to each other. It's because I, I always worked in small companies or companies that maybe didn't have the funds to provide nutrition services or a dietitian. So we we only had each other, really. We, like, we couldn't talk about it, right, with anybody else other than your your peers or your support system, which could be your family. But then 
if you think about it, I was always lucky enough to have my family with me wherever I was working. But I had friends, dancers as well, that they would just come from Brazil and not see their parents for two years. So they, all they had was to talk about this, uh, to talk this about with us, you know. So you become a therapist, you become a nutritionist. I think it's amazing that the Houston Ballet and other prestigious institutions have the ability to have a sports medicine team or nutrition or dietitians. But when it comes to small companies, small studios, you know, dance academies, they don't have that. And, and again, it's just your, your friends become all of that, that you're trying that, that we need really as, as dancers. Yeah, it was complicated, especially because I never went into a really big, really big company. So I was never exposed to a nutrition. I, I never I've never been to a nutritionist, actually, or a dietitian before. So you just kind of had to do it on your own and Google. <laughs> right. So, yeah, that was that was going to be my question. Where do the dancers get their information if they don't have a, a dietitian? Right. So yes, Google. Uh, to me, it was Google, and that's why I got into that uh, nutrition dietetics because I was so frustrated because I would find an article that would say something, and then the other one talking about the same topic would just say the opposite. So I was like, so who's right? It, it was just Google or Instagram. Instagram was uh, starting to get very popular when I was dancing pre-professionally. Uh, right now, I think right now it's even more tricky because. We got all these TikTokers and everyone's a nutrition expert and it gets tricky because, yes, it's awesome that they can find nutrition information, but also who are you getting it from, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's why when I heard, when Roberta told me about athletes and the arts, I was like, how did I never hear about this before? I wish, and I know for a fact, no, none of my peers who are still dancing know, know about this. And so now I just want, I just want to know, let them know that the, there are resources out there because if you can't afford nutrition services, that a dietitian, at, at least, you know, we can give them information or like have them refer them to, to outpatient sports dietitians if they don't have that. But I think there's there's got to be a limit between what the coach can do about, you know, the, the nutrition. They shouldn't be the ones to tell you what to do with, you know, what to eat when or how to do it or how much weight you have to lose. Here on the, the Athletes in the Arts podcast, uh, Steve and I have actually been really lucky that, you know, we've interviewed a lot of different directors and dance that have that have caught on to the importance of nutrition and how vital it is to have a sports medicine staff on board, um, even at a studio or a company, just to make sure that dancers are meeting their needs and, and following up when they need to, when they get injured and, and helping kind of navigate um, the nutritional aspect of things before things get bad. And so uh, they, we, we've been fortunate to see that there are directors and instructors out there that are paying attention to this but there's still a lot of work that we need to do. Um, the other thing is, so yes, today there's a lot of people turning to TikTok, Instagram, uh, Google. And then in the days that I was doing more dance, I remember it was magazines and newspapers and maybe a news segment on a celebrity. And um, so there's a ton of information out there. 
And I hope that with the resources that we have, people can learn and, and understand that it's important to get your information from the right sources, from someone who is credentialed, um, a dietitian. And something else that I think would be really important to, to discuss is how do we continue to cultivate body image resilience in dancers? So Astrid, you talked a little bit about being a Pilates instructor too, right? And, and you're doing some um, instructing with dance. So how are you taking your experience and sharing it with the dancers that you work with or any of the students that come in for Pilates? Yes. Well, for Pilates, I, or I'm lucky enough because I was able to network with um, the owner who's um, a former soloist ballet dancer. Wonderful. So she, yeah, so she knows all about, all about ballet as well. So at our studio, we, for Pilates, we usually get to teach to adult women, uh, not necessarily professional ballet dancers or or teenagers it's mainly uh you're uh, the adult population and it's it's a beautiful thing because the philosophy are of our of our studio is just body positivity so she did a really good job at training all the instructors which we're we're about i lost count i think we're like 15 of instructors in total but she did an amazing job at you know, first thing she she told us uh, when when training is we're we're not here to talk about calories, how many calories we're gonna be burning in this workout, or oh, I need to lose weight. You know, and and if we ever get a clients that you know lead with these comments, we 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 just redirect, right? We just we we try to praise them because they they look more energetic or they they. They look stronger, happier, mm-hmm. and we try not to put the, the the focus on how they look, right? But it's a it's a it's a beautiful place. Everyone is so supportive of each other, and I think a lot of it, you know, for example, my mom, she she comes to take classes at the studio, and she's a very very shy person, and she loves it there because she doesn't feel judged, she doesn't feel like they're looking at her. And it's a very, it's a very comfortable space that we've been able to uh, create because then you can be you at whatever shape, at whatever size and know that you're, you know, you're, you're there to have fun, to just be the healthier version of yourself. And for, for my ballet students, sometimes it's hard in the sense that whenever I hear them having say comments about what they're eating and not gentle towards themselves it's hard because it's like I wish they could see how amazing they are and sometimes I see I I take that to myself and I was like what if I could have been able to tell this to my myself when I was their age right um so I try to be that person that tells them you don't need to talk to you uh to yourself uh in this way and there's other things that we can focus on. Your technique is getting better. Um, you know, you're, you, you look stronger. You have more energy to do a full run of the stance. And if they ever have nutrition concerns, I try to do a, the team talk style, right? Because it's the best way to, to get their attention for at least five to ten minutes. And we'll talk about nutrition. I'll let them ask questions and, you know. Uh, just try to keep it very positive so that they don't feel like I'm just another instructor that is expecting them to look a certain way and, you know, just have this anxiety towards what they're eating because they're so young. They're so young. It's just, it, 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 it hurts me to see sometimes that they feel like they need to diet, right? So 
Michelle and uh, Roberta, can you share a little bit about some of the other performance factors that one can focus on as a dancer that has nothing to do with weight? Because I think I see this in, in you know, regular athletics as well. It's like when I was helping build body composition policies and, and trying to navigate away from weighing all the time and, and having to depend on uh, body composition tracking, like a device of some sort, we'd be having these conversations with coaches, like let's talk about some of the other factors to be focusing in on that can support the gymnast, the runner. Um, so what are some of the, the things that you guys would stress the importance of? Well, I'm going to say how much time do we have? Um, when, I, when you think about overall performance nutrition, and I think Astrid mentioned it, that if the focus is I need to eat more protein mm -hmm. at, and not eat carbs, you can start to see things where people can't get through a workout. I hear the comment, my legs were dead. I couldn't, I couldn't get through a workout. And it becomes, again, that teaching moment. Mm -hmm. And just like Michelle mm -hmm. said, when you go to a rehearsal and you're there and someone just has a quick question, it doesn't have to be a soliloquy on everything about nutrition. I think oftentimes um, when we start to talk about optimal performance, particularly in dance, we need to take a look at what I call vulnerable nutrients. If you're an indoor athlete, and my experience is ballerinas don't sit out in the sun and get tan, mm -hmm. um, they're much more likely to have a vitamin D deficiency. Dairy has gotten a really bad name for lots of inappropriate reasons. And so milk is off the menu. And now you're really looking at metabolic bone disease. You've got amenorrhea, calcium deficiencies, vitamin D deficiencies. Um, even in a female athlete who is is amenorrheic, you can still have iron deficiency anemia that can cause fatigue. And, um, you know, now you're vegan and you're vegan for caloric reasons, not because of animal rights. So again, it's that skilled dietitian that can take a look at, again, those vulnerable nutrients and say, did you know if you're iron deficient, you're going to be short of breath by the end of a rehearsal, you're going to be fatigued walking up a flight of stairs. It doesn't mean that you need to rehearse more or train more, you've got a nutrition deficiency. And I think um, oftentimes we do focus in on calories and weight and body composition, and we miss the forest for the trees. Nutrition is much more than that. Nutrition is about having all the nutrients in concert with one another to maximize performance, regardless of your chosen sport or discipline. Excellent. And I, I agree with all of that. And one thing I will add to that is if we can teach the concept of energy availability, mm -hmm. when you're sitting there watching, you don't need to be necessarily eating unless you're going to be dancing very soon. So you want to teach them to eat to their needs. That way you're not energy um, deficient. You don't want to give them too much, but you want them to have enough to be able to keep the stamina. And as a dancer, stamina has got to be a big part of what you need to build. And so if we can teach that scientific concept in a simple way mm -hmm. of energy availability, it's not that you're always eating, it's you're eating when you need to, and you have your carbs when you need them. So maybe later in the evening, you don't have as many carbs, but that's when you have more of your protein. Everyone thinks that protein is going to give them energy. Well, it will if you don't have enough carbs, and then that's not a good thing because you really want to use carbs for your energy. And I think that to add to what Roberta said, 
sort of makes a nice package as a you know as a dietitian going in and addressing all of these issues and if you can teach your if you can teach nutrition in a basic level to your dancers then there's a trust and a belief mm-hmm. and that's why I think um, having a summer intensive program if you're in one of the bigger companies and you get to see these dancers come back year after year you're building um, a positive curriculum that nutrition is not an enemy, it's an ally. And here's why we call it that. And again, very fortunate for me that I got to build the curriculum at the Houston Ballet and my dancers were my best critics. Well, could you teach me about this? Or should I be taking supplements? Should I um, fill in the blank? Should I be taking probiotics for protecting my immune system where honestly you're just underfueled and you're not sleeping well and a probiotic really isn't going to help you. So again, I think we've got great opportunities as sports dietitians to make a positive impact along with our team physicians. And if your company has an athletic trainer or a physical therapist, this is the team behind the team. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, that's the beauty of sport is you've got a team behind the team. So you mentioned before about how dairy's got a bad name now and we're seeing more problems because of that. So if you all, if you, everybody here had a magic, if everybody here had a magic wand and they could make one myth about nutrition go away, um, one or two, or one problematic belief out there that's, it gets perpetuated all the time, what would that be? Hmm. Thinner is better. Um, I think there becomes that tipping point where you lose too much weight and you're losing muscle mass and you lose your beauty and you lose your ability. And I think in the dance world, I think the concept always is thinner is better. I think that's a big myth. Another myth is that calcium or that milk myth, Mm -hmm. that milk is not good for you. Um, If they could even take a yogurt with them, even a tiny little yogurt to have in between their practices, they're going to be getting some calcium out of that. Right. Um, there are certain foods that are pretty rich in calcium in the dairy world. There are some outside the dairy world, but in the dairy world, there are some foods that are really rich in calcium. So you don't have to eat as much of them to get as much calcium and, and protein. Mm-hmm. So again, that's that's another thing that dairy is not good for you. Dairy is is definitely good for you. I'll throw in another one. Amenorrhea is normal in dancers. Oh, gosh. And it's perfectly okay to not have your period at 21 years old. Um, and well, my my instructor told me she never had a period. So I think, and, and Astra did a beautiful job of highlighting this, mm-hmm. is oftentimes your, your fellow dancers are your source of information. And then oftentimes they're getting their information from their instructors. And I cannot tell you how many times I heard well, dancers don't need to get periods. It's because we train hard. And then the sequelae is you've got osteoporosis in your early 30s. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's there's things that you don't get a do-over. And optimum bone health, you don't necessarily get a do-over. So I think there's a lot of myths in that professional world of dance. And I think, we've, I think the challenges and the opportunity for us as dietitians is we need to make a positive impact on this very, very important group of artistic um, athletes. Yeah, there's one other myth is that you only get fluid from water. <laughs> and people that walk around with the 64 ounces of water, 
they discount the fact that you get fluid in other foods. Mm -hmm. Um, And for dancers, that could be one way to uh, tamp down your appetite. And you can say, well, I'm getting hydrated, but you may be displacing some nutrients with water. Not that water isn't good, not that we shouldn't be hydrated, but balance. Can I also add that carbs are our friends? <laughs> because yes. are absolutely necessary for an efficient and easy energy source that can be used towards dance. I am going to throw that in there and I'm very passionate about it. Um, what can parents do to support young athletes? We have something called Dance Moms, right? And they are backstage, they are with us at the studio. A lot of the information, in addition to the directors and the media, is the information that we get from moms and how, or dads, um, how can we navigate that? And how do we, like, what can parents do to support their dancers? Cause a lot of the, their, the beliefs of the dancers start in those early years and it, it progresses on to the twenties and thirties and even forties and later on. So how do we, how do we navigate that? Because I've done a, a lot of talks in this area. Mm-hmm. I think first moms and, and dads need to have their own positive body image. And that needs to be mirrored at home where you don't say at the dinner table, oh, geez, I gained 10 pounds on vacation. I guess I need to go do whole 30. Because when the dieting culture is set at home, it's really hard to undo the dieting culture. Um, I think oftentimes, and this is where my physician colleagues are indispensable, I think that most most parents don't have a good understanding of pubertal growth and development and don't understand the body compositions that are normal and expected because I would get calls, well, my daughter got a little hippie mm-hmm. and um, or she's putting on a little extra body fat not having any clue that it's normal. So I do do think, and that's an excellent question, Yasi, I do think there needs to be tons of education for those first best teachers, which are parents. Leave your own body dissatisfaction at the door and make sure that if you don't have a good handle on normal pubertal development, that you either ask your pediatrician, primary care doc, sports medicine doc, and get a little, get educated on your own. I think it's also important to educate parents on use of services of a therapist. I think first thing that needs to be done by parents is yes, build that self-esteem for the for their kid and that self-confidence. So when it gets hard, because it will get hard, it will get more, there will be more pressure, there will be more competition. You want them to be at least prepared in that sense, but that doesn't mean that there's gonna be a point where they can break, right? And at at what point can a parent help uh, in that aspect? And I think normalizing the need of therapists, you know, at at least in the Latino culture, which is uh, my culture, uh, it's still seen as it's for crazy people. So um, I think being able to just educate our parents or just like the dancers in general, like it's okay if we need help, right? I think that having that support throughout their career is as important just as much as it is to have your support system, which can be your family and friends as well. And I'd like to add that maybe educating the parents that registered dietitians who specialize in this area are really helpful to their students and inviting the parents to either meet alone with you so that you can um, 
educate them or to have them come in with a first or second meeting with their dancer so they understand what a dietitian's going to do. I'm very fortunate that the, the little dancer that I'm working with right now, I call her little because she's young, but the young dancer that I'm working with, it was her mother who planted the seed and she said, why don't you talk to Miss Macedonio? Because the daughter was saying to her, I'm, you know, I'm, I'd like to lose a little bit of weight. I'd like to get in better shape. She didn't listen at first. And my friend stepped away. And then the daughter came to the mother and said, Mom, would you call Miss Macedonio so I could talk with her? Mm-hmm. And I think it's really helpful when the parents are supportive because they will help execute some of the suggestions. Mm-hmm. Like I had this mom bring a little snack that we planned into her day, bring it to her when she picked her up so that when she walked in the door, she wasn't ravenous and then just grabbed at anything she could get. So I think it's good to involve the parents in the education. I guess the last comment I'll make about that is, um, because this is a passion area of mine, is not everybody can afford a therapist, not everybody can afford a registered dietitian. So we end up with a whole population that is underserved. So I would also encourage that for dietitians who really want to get into this area to at least initially volunteer some time, go knock on the door to smaller companies and say, I'd love to be able to um, give a talk for your group and please invite the parents. And then at least the information is disseminated and then the company can refer on to the RD. Uh, I've done this with a really great sports psychologist in Houston, and we've gone to the smaller companies that could not afford. And again, some of the inner city um, dance ballet groups that are in Houston, not necessarily ballet, but it could be hip hop or something else, and volunteered our time knowing that we're not going to get any referrals. We're not going to get any referrals because the family cannot afford it. So I think for us, again, we all have to make a living. Um, we need to make sure that we're taking care of our own finances, but it's also taking a look at vulnerable populations that are never going to be able to afford a therapist or an RD. And again, taking a look at where could you strategically volunteer your time to give out this information, particularly for RDs to be. Let's say, I want to, I want to work in this area. Perfect opportunity for you to um, get with a mentor develop an outline and perfect your public speaking skills. And then everybody wins the RD, RD to be wins, the mentor wins, and most importantly, our athletes win. And it's important as a, as a professional to give back because you didn't get to where you got without somebody helping you. So I want to shift over real quick to the sports and human performance, nutrition, dietetic Mm -hmm. practice group. I want to just share um, what kind of resources are available to dancers. Could you tell us a little bit about that, Roberta? Sure. And as Michelle said, uh, for those of people who are not familiar with dietetic practice groups, the original one was sports, cardiovascular, and wellness. And as the performance world grew and grew and grew and the cardiovascular group grew, there wasn't enough time and space to do both content areas justice. So under the leadership of Lindsay Torres and Jen Ketterly, the decision was made to split and now have sports and human performance nutrition. And this encompasses all people who are physically active 
from firefighters to first responders. I would probably say we, we could put trauma surgeons in there. Anybody who's physically active now should have a home. So the, the website is um, uh, shippen, S-H-P-N, dpg.org. And then you can click on fact sheets. If you're a member, there are webinars. And again, Michelle is correct. She really helped us to build out some great webinars on bone health and omega-3s and other things that dietitians can take back to their, their work site and enhance nutrition. So our theme for this year was to elevate practice. And in order to elevate practice, sports dietitians need to take the lead and they need to have the correct information because as the science evolves, if you don't evolve with it, you now become immaterial. It's like, oh, oh, here's the dietitian. She's going to give me an exchange diet and can't answer my question. So the goal is to elevate practice. So I would encourage any dietitian who's um, listening to this podcast to become a member, to come visit our booth at Fency. If you're going to our annual meeting in Orlando, please come visit and learn a little bit more about shipping. Certainly want to thank all the, the dietitians who came before me now that I'm, I'm back in this chair role, certainly led by Michelle Macedonio, Chris Rosenblum, Leslie Bonsi, Ellen Coleman, all these giants of sports nutrition that made the evolution of this practice so much more um much easier to execute based on the, the shoulders of those giants. I couldn't have said it better. Thank you all so much. This has just been such an amazing episode and, and so beautiful to have you all on here with us. Um, tons of great information in this episode. For more information, I want to encourage all listeners to go to shpndpg.org. Um, we have a ton of resources for um, athletes and just sports nutrition, general sports nutrition information. And now we have a whole section coming up for athletes and the arts. Um, right now, we do have general fact sheets on nutrition for dancers, and we are continuing to grow the resources that we provide on this website. In addition, our athletesandthearts.com website has a ton of information as well. Um, we have a, a, a great amount of resources from professionals, and um, we are encouraging everyone and all listeners to really take a look at the nutrition information that's out there and make sure they're getting their nutrition information from trusted sources. So thank you again, Roberta, Michelle, and Astrid for being here with us this morning. And of course, Steve, my co-host. Um, well, this, was, this was awesome. And, and thank you all again. Well, thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks so much. And that wraps up our show. I want to thank all of our guests today, as well as Yassi. Remember, if you like what you hear, please click subscribe and leave a nice review for us. For Yassi Ansari, this is Stephen Karaginas, and this has been the Athletes and the Arts Podcast. Mm-hmm.